Welcome to the Remote Leadership Podcast. I'm Deborah Dinocenzo. For more than two decades, I've helped organizations and leaders successfully go virtual. Join me to learn tips, techniques, and skills that leaders and teams in your organization can implement now to achieve effectiveness in our evolving remote workplace. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Remote Leadership Podcast. As the workplace continues evolving to more hybrid models, I've been focused on identifying the skills, behaviors, and techniques that successful leaders are applying in the hybrid workspace. My guest today has experience in the remote work environment and trains coaches, and assesses leaders who are increasingly leading hybrid teams. I'm delighted to welcome Rick Swagan, CEO and Principal of Arch Performance, an HR consultancy that helps organizations bridge performance gaps in talent development and leadership with areas of expertise in assessment, training, and coaching. Rick is also the co-author of the soon-to-be-released book, the Practice of Ethical Leadership. Thanks for joining me today, Rick, and welcome. Thanks, Deborah. It's my pleasure to be here. So share with our listeners today a little bit about your experience with remote work, distance work, telework, and uh, what you've experienced. And then we could talk a little bit about what you see some of your clients experiencing. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I started my career uh, in remote, if you will, when I was in sales and I worked for a fairly traditional organization at the time. Uh, but uh, at one point in that experience, I had the opportunity to basically work from home while selling to a client organization. That was 25 years ago. Uh, and since that time, uh, almost every job I've had in my current position uh, has involved virtual or remote work, uh, not been traditional office bound kind of experience of course you probably didn't 25 years ago call it that right no it was it was 25 years ago it was just a great opportunity to work from home and not have to go into the office so right. it's pretty simple that way. right well and in you know my own experience uh managing uh sales groups i had salespeople distributed if you will because they were out in throughout the region that i managed and they had an office at home. I mean, mostly I wanted them out selling, not being at home much. But, um, you know, that right, kind of just shines a little spotlight on the fact that we've really collectively have had more experience with the remote distance work, telework, uh, whatever terminology we want to use. We didn't use any of it before. But uh, collectively, we have more experience with that than we sometimes recognize. It's just, I think, uh, obviously, since COVID, especially, uh, it's just been on such a huge scale that it feels um, more uh, difficult, challenging, because so many more people are doing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would respond to that in two ways. The, the last organization that I worked for before I went out on my own was entirely virtual, and hmm. but no one talked about it as being virtual. That was just the way we did business. Um, because everyone worked from home offices. Uh, and then more recently, and you alluded to this, um, in my consulting business, I've had more of an opportunity to experience 
the virtual world kind of on a secondhand basis because of all the constraints and problems that were caused by the pandemic. Right. Uh, and that's been, that was certainly eye opening for a lot of organizations at that time. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you see some of your client organizations trying to meet? Uh, you know, the, the biggest one, um, and, and I do a lot of work with a utility company, which is obviously during that time was an essential industry. Uh, but overnight, they went from being a traditional bricks and mortar organization to literally uh, huge portions of the organization working from home. Uh, so they had to adapt to working uh, via Teams or other video processes. They had to they had to change 180 degrees literally overnight, and it was a dramatic shift for them because they were used to doing shift work. They were used to going into the plant. And suddenly that didn't exist. And it was dramatic change for that organization. Well, I'm sure some people still had to be there, right, Chuck? Sure. Right, the plant. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was working with a client at that time, also an essential industry, where all of the leadership had to leave. Mm -hmm. Only the essential people that uh, were involved in manufacturing and shipping and still meeting client needs. Um, that was a life sciences organization that provided lab equipment to the world, yeah. which was vitally important then. So that was um, truly, uh, you know, hybrid kind of environment. Then we weren't calling it hybrid yet then. Yeah. And, and, and I know you specialize in leadership The um, in the virtual world. The, the big aha for me, uh, and, and I don't specialize in this as a, as a run-of-the-mill issue was the importance of emotional intelligence on the part of the leaders mm -hmm. as they went to a virtual environment. And what I mean by that is that in, in, in a utility, for example, typically you have safety meetings to start every day. And in many cases, you have sh uh, shift change meetings at the end of the day. So you're meeting with your team on a regular basis. And what the effective leaders in those situations discovered is they had to pay attention to people's feelings because now they were worried about family. They were worried about kids. They were worried about their health personally. And the, the effective leaders addressed that, uh, spent time dealing with that issue, which really wasn't work-related, right. not the work issues nearly as much. And, and clearly the ones that picked up that need were the ones that were effective. And they didn't have time to go through any training on emotional intelligence, right? Not a, not a darn thing, no. Right. I mean, it was, uh, although I, I, ironically, the organization these people work for did do stuff on emotional intelligence, but it wasn't mainstream stuff. Right, right. So people just adapted. We Absolutely. Pi pivoted, as we said back in the day. Absolutely. Um, and... Uh, were there any leaders that you were aware of during that time that were not doing this very effectively, that were not uh, pivoting, adapting, or did they generally in the main step up? I, I would say in the main, they stepped up. Um, the, the, the ones that were probably less effective um, suffered more personal stress during the mm. time period. Um, more than anything else, not that they were ineffective in getting the work done necessarily, but it was far more stressful for them not to be able to see people, to feel disconnected from them personally. Um, it was just very, very difficult for them. 
Yeah, I saw that as well in terms of uh, the the difficulty meeting that challenge uh, where people didn't feel like they were prepared. No one was prepared, right? right. Um, it, it, to me, it drives home the point that we need to all step back and look at you know what the reality is of the work environment now. Uh, what additional training, coaching do leaders need to get uh, comfortable and competent to the degree that they don't have to feel the stress of mm-hmm. uh, figuring out how to manage all of this and how to to do this, uh, particularly for leaders who grew up in the more face-to-face, although I, I like to say on-site versus face-to-face. I think when we are meeting with these wonderful technologies that right. we didn't have even 10 years ago, uh, and we can see each other, it does overcome so many of the obstacles we complained about for so many years. And that is face-to-face. It's not on-site face-to-face. Right. And we need to separate that um, in, in our minds from uh, it, that it's somehow inferior. It's not. It's way better than how things used to be. And the reality is, as you probably know better than I, uh, the the battle for talent right now is such that um, many organizations need to find critical talent wherever it is. And it might not be moving to where you happen to have your plant or your headquarters. Yeah, I, I think all that's true. I, I, I would say um, kind of as a last thought on this from my own business, which is entirely virtual. Everybody that works with me works from a home office. Uh, the pandemic was a godsend. I mean, the, the kinds of things that I deliver, assessment centers, evaluation of people, is far easier to do via the internet and, and has a great cost benefit because we're not paying travel for people. Uh, we're at more efficient in many ways than we were previously less wear and tear on bodies and and you know one other side benefit for me personally people are on time on meetings when they're held on the internet unlike you go into a plant and you hold a meeting and you're waiting 20 minutes for everybody to show up people are on time and on schedule when they're on the web well that is true Uh, one of the downsides and i always speak to leaders about this is we tend to start the virtual meetings, if you will, uh, getting right into the agenda. And one of the things that is missing is the the interpersonal chitty chat mm-hmm. uh, conversation that happens as we gather. Uh, so smart leaders uh, facilitate and provide an opportunity for some of that, which I think is really important. Um, although Every leader I work with right now is overwhelmed and so busy that it it doesn't feel like they have time for that. But we do have to all remember that the value of that when we were on site together or on the occasions we are on site, how to leverage those opportunities to build rapport and get to know people. To me, it's the emotional intelligence piece again. I mean, it's a time consuming issue, but I think the truly effective leaders go with that at a certain point because they recognize the importance of it. Right, right. So uh, I'm curious about your um, your upcoming soon-to-be-released book, The mm-hmm. Practice of Ethical Leadership. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, to co-author that book and tell us a little bit about, about your co-author. And also, if you could kind of speak to, because I'm curious about, does all of the increase in 
distance work, geodispersed teams, hybrid work have an impact, do you think, on how organizations manage ethical behavior? Okay, you asked me about four questions. I did there. ask so four if I, questions. If I right. miss something, I'll remind you'll, you. you'll remind me. Thank right. you. So, so let's so start with the book. Start with the book. So right. the um the the book briefly is is relatively speaking a, a practical exploration of how do organizations reinforce ethical behavior, make sure it occurs in the organization, hire ethical leaders, develop ethical behavior. And that's the short version. I can give you more detail on that. It came from kind of vicariously from Enron, if you will. And Enron, I use Enron only as an example of what happens in a lot of cases. When I go out and talk to organizations, one of the things I ask people to do is raise your hand if you consider yourself an ethical, honest person. Hmm. And how many people raise their hand? Everybody in of the room. Course, okay. Right. Yeah. Maybe there's one honest person who says, you know, I cheated at one point, but 98%, 99, 100% of people say, yes, I'm ethical, ethical and honest. And I'm sure that's true of the people who worked in Enron, but something went wrong to the point that you have massive fraud on the part of an organization. They probably never asked themselves that question. Well, they probably never did. <laughs> But my, my, the point being, the culture didn't encourage it to be asked. So fundamentally, the, the book starts with that question. I mean, why do people who are otherwise honest misbehave in certain situations? Obviously, we offer some uh, prescriptions about what can be done, et cetera. And you asked a question about my co-author. I, I end, my co-author is a younger German. His name is Florian Angelka who is a probably 45, I don't know, we've never compared notes that way. And we happened to meet doing an assessment center together, started to talk about the topic, and one thing led to another. So uh, I, I think we bring a little bit of a different perspective, because obviously I'm an American, a uh, little bit older than Florian. Uh, he's in a different culture, different language, et cetera, although his English is fluent. So we have a slightly different perspective there. Uh, and we've worked with it. We've worked on writing the book for four years during the pandemic. And we saw one another probably five years ago. And that's the last time we've actually been physically together. So this was a virtual project. Absolutely. Good, bad and otherwise. Right, right, right. Well, uh, when Jason Morwick and I wrote our book that we published during uh, COVID on remote leadership, as a matter of fact, we did that also remotely. As a matter of fact, I had not even met Jason. We knew each other. Mm -hmm. We had worked on projects, but we had never actually met on site, real face to face, and didn't until after the book was published. Yeah, it, it, for for Florian and myself, it's been an interesting experience because it's been an extended project, and both of us had parents die during the experience when we started. Donald Trump was the president, uh, which has ethical concerns and considerations. We've now gone through multiple wars. So it feels like this has been a uh, ongoing experience, but also a, a virtual experience where we've been able to connect over extremely personal issues uh, at various points, which I guess is the, the best part of, of a virtual situation. Right. Well, it, it certainly sounds like it was a, an interesting experience to get the book written. So it's done. Is it 
uh, when when will it be released? It will come out uh, late uh, February of twenty four. Okay, great. So, um, so one of my many questions I asked at the beginning of this was um, the, and before I get to the impact of remote work and and hybrid work on um, ethics uh, in organizations, I'm curious about can. Can you actually train for, can you identify ethical people? Can you um, train people to be ethical? I mean, is it, does it just come back to, you know, having clear uh, policies, making sure they're communicated, um, you know, having appropriate disclosures, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. boy, (laughs) You're really good at multiple choice questions. Yes, yes, yes. Once, um, I guess the answer to that is we struggled initially with all that as well. Um, if, if you go into the uh, psychological literature on can you hire ethical people, most of the literature there is questioning the, the reality of that, meaning you can, you can test for honesty, for example, but does that translate into actual behavior at work, right. and most of the psychological literature says maybe not. Um, you could test as an honest person, but does that mean you behave as an honest person? I'm not sure. Likewise, the the, the literature is similar on training for ethics, um, in, in meaning that a lot of the training that occurs around ethical issues, sexual harassment, whatever, um, they're held in pretty safe laboratory situations. You get into a lot of socially acceptable answers. So again, the question becomes, is my behavior that I exhibit in training what I will exhibit back on the job? So that's the the classic answer to that. Our belief and our research suggests the answer to both is yes, you can develop it and you can hire people for it, but it requires additional sets of tools and work beyond what has traditionally been done. So what do organizations need to start with? I mean, obviously there needs to be ethics policies or, I mean, are there some key fundamental things that need to be in place? You can't just talk about it and say, I mean, obviously you can have a statements, positive statements about, you know, we have an ethical culture, this is important to us, but in terms of uh, particularly as people are more dispersed and they're not interacting with each other, I don't even know if that makes much of a difference. So what do you, what do you and Florian recommend in your book around uh, what organizations need to put in place in terms of standards, policies? Where do they start? Yeah, the answer to that, I'll give you an answer, but we're, we're not big bugs on compliance and policies. Um, we, we think organizations need that, but we don't think that's fundamental, frankly. Well, uh, except for organizations that have mandatory compliance right, requirements. Right, right, right. No question about that. But, you know, the, the, the way we've looked at it, and you can think about the, the great resignation, uh, not very many organiz- people go to work for an organization that says, we obey the law and we're compliant. It's not a real come on. Yeah. Um, it's it's much more of a come on and the and the research that's out there on demographics suggests this is true to give people a higher sense of meaning and we believe that is 
people want to want to work for organizations that are, are ethical in the greater sense of that word in terms of contribution to the community, contribution to society, et cetera. So we, we think that's a key driver. Uh, there are probably three things that we think are critical relative to your question. One is leadership from the top that is ethical. Okay. Uh, I think that's absolutely important. And, and I'll give you a couple examples of that. Secondly is uh, well-defined values that drive behavior. Uh, and thirdly is a culture of transparency and discussion. Okay. Relative to ethics or yeah. anything? Relative to ethics, relative to the sense that, you know, if you simplify and say, we want to be an organization that does the right thing. And right thing can be defined in multiple ways, right? You have to talk about that. You can't simply dictate to people how to make decisions in a given case. You have to talk about pros and cons. You have to be willing, if I'm a leader, to admit that I struggled with this or to ask for input on issues. Uh, it, has to, it has to be a discussion culture. It can't be a dictated culture. So um, before we wrap up, I still want to hear from you around the um, impact you think the growing distributed, dispersed, hybrid, remote work environment is impacting ethics or how organizations convey all of this, do all of this, ensure ethical standards, ethical behavior when you know, perhaps they're not seeing people as often. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, let me let me answer that in in two ways. One is, is I think it still goes back to leadership at the top, um, regardless of whether you're geographically dispersed, not present, et cetera. Let me give you a tangible example of what I mean by that. Uh, Chip Berg, who is now I think the chairman of Levi Strauss and CEO. Um, we we cite him a lot in the book. Never talked with him, but the examples are fundamental there. I've heard him speak, and he speaks about the core values of Levi Strauss and how that drives decision-making. So case in point, after one of the um, gun violence incidents, he came out publicly with a statement calling for gun control. He thought the values of the organization spoke to him to say, we need to make our stance clear. Even though Levi Strauss doesn't make guns. Even though they don't make guns. Right? Right. I could talk about other examples. My point being, though, he took a values-oriented stance on the behalf of the organization publicly, and I think that's the kind of leader that people follow. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, we can argue, and, and maybe we can at another point, you know, whether that was the right thing to do, but it was a values-driven decision. So I think you have to have that model at the top. Um where it gets, I think, more complex when when you're dispersed and your team is dispersed is, and, and you know more about this than I do, fundamentally, you can't be an ethical leader if you're not a good leader. So do there, do I, does it require me to lead differently if my people are dispersed? And the answer is probably yes, correct? So right. fundamentally, you can't, it, it's difficult to establish an ethical culture remotely or in a traditional organization if you're a bad leader to begin with. So improving leadership skills. And then beyond that, it, I think fundamentally it goes back to, again, establishing a discussion culture that's transparent about decisions that are made about right and wrong. That means as a, a leader, 
remotely, I need to be willing to go to people and say, here's the decision I made about a particular issue. Here's the rationale behind it. I'd like to hear your opinions on that. It may mean going to them and saying, here's a decision I'm in the process of making. Uh, I'd like your input on seeking as well. Seeking input. Right? It's, seek, it's seeking input yep. and being transparent enough to say, I don't have all the answers. Because mm-hmm. one of the things you'll hear, and I'll, I'll use the term now that we talk about in the book, I, ha- I have personal opinions about right and wrong, correct? As we all do. Right. Which is kind of the core of ethics. We we think, and, and I think particularly, uh, the, the real issue for an organization is process ethics, meaning you got to talk about the issues. You got to be willing to dialogue about it. You need to be willing to disagree openly. You need to work to be heard. You need to get an, an atmosphere of consensus. Um, and you need to grapple with those issues. Um, not that we will necessarily agree on everything in terms of what right and wrong, but being heard and being transparent about it, we think is critical. You know, one of the thoughts that occurred to me just listening to your last response is that we probably don't think about leaders being ethical relative to emotional intelligence. But I think what we're seeing now in the workplace with so much more dissatisfaction, so many people um, not engaged, Mm -hmm. that it's becoming a matter of um, ethics to care about people as well, not just care about conformance to requirements and doing things that aren't illegal, let alone, you know, unethical, but, uh, but truly caring about people to me is an important critical part of leadership now. And I think is connected in some ways to being a a caring and ethical leader. No, I I, I would agree with that. One of the things that we talk about in the book, uh, at one point is kind of what are the areas that are that leaders grapple with from an ethical perspective? And we list four or five, but one of those is safety. Mm-hmm. And and we define safety not just in physical safety, but in terms of psychological safety, uh, which means, again, going back to your point, uh, I have to be aware of my the impact of my words on others I need to take into account how they may be responding to things. I need to have the emotional intelligence to be aware of that. And I, you know, obviously have to be an ethical leader is concerned about physical safety as well. Right. Um, So I absolutely would concur with that. Yeah. Psychological safety, another whole topic. Yeah. And I, I, I I hesitate to use the term psychological safety, but I mean, well-being, emotional well-being. Right. Right. Um, right. Which is vitally important. Right. As people are um, more dispersed and of course, you know, um, I preach a lot about, um, you know, trust, communication um, and performance, mm-hmm. obviously. So communication is vitally important, which ties into a lot of what you said about how to raise the awareness mm-hmm. about the the value that organizations pay, place on being ethical and the, a, an important message for all leaders uh, to lead ethically mm-hmm. and has lots of manifestations. So I uh, remind us again when the book is available. The book will come out in uh, February 24. The The subtitle of it is The Practice of Ethical Leadership. It's available on, will be available, it's available now for pre-purchase on Amazon. 
um, and will also be available through our site, which is ethicalbottomline.com. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and your expertise on um, leading and leading ethically, I, I think it raises some really interesting questions about all the manifestations of that uh, for remote and hybrid leaders. Yeah, I think, you know, if I could leave with a closing thought, I mean, what we wanted to do in the book more than anything else is raise consciousness of ethical behavior and ethics, because I don't think, and this is not a knock on my compliance friends and colleagues, that organizations by and large give it enough attention. And that's why we see things like Enron and we see misbehavior in other places. Absolutely. So thank All you right. so much. Well, thank you, Rick. This is Deborah with a quick reminder about our remote leadership mastery program. This coaching program leverages intentional and authentic connections with team members to achieve targeted productivity and profitability for individual leaders or small leadership groups. This is timely coaching to ensure hybrid leadership excellence. See the show notes for a link to schedule a call with me to learn more or to enroll. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Remote Leadership Podcast. To learn more about how I can help you and your team, your colleagues, and your organization master the skills, systems, and culture for the remote hybrid work environment, see the show notes for ways to reach me or contact me at remoteleadershippodcast.com. Thanks for listening and for always learning.